So I've been thinking a lot about money this week, partly because uh, of the message, but also because, you know, Julia and I are just approaching our one year here moving to D.C. from Canada, so we had to adjust a lot of our expectations for finances. We were looking at where we have been spending our money, and we've been looking at how what we spent on reflects what we say we value. I want to ask you, how differently would you live if you found out this was your bank account balance? What, how differently would you live with $14 million in the bank versus $100 in the bank? You probably think about different things. You probably worry about different things. You probably worry less about some and worry more about some new things. And you probably use your money much differently. Here's the thing. We are far more wealthy than we realize, except we often don't live like it. We live like we only have $100 in the bank, worrying about working and accumulating and storing up more for ourselves when, in fact, there's more available to us. Why? It's because we've measured the wrong kind of wealth. What if true wealth was measured beyond the dollars and cents you have in your bank account? In the people of God, uh, people of the book message series this summer, we're allowing the structured reading of scriptures presented to us through the lectionary to invite us to hear God address all parts of our lives. And in this week's readings, there's a clear theme throughout several of our readings that Sam read for us that speaks to true wealth and our relationship with money. Did you know that Jesus talks more about money? than he did about heaven and hell combined? Out of his 40 parables, 11 of them are about money and finances. And there's probably a reason for that. Money is so important because it reveals who you are. The scripture from Luke 12 that we read earlier, and uh, also Byron mentioned it, the Matthew version of it, continues on in that chapter uh, where Jesus talks to this young man. And he says to him later, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Scripture is full of guidance about what humans are to do with our resources and our wealth. So here's how we're going to look at it today. How we can treasure wealth well. Number one is the myth of our wealth. Number two is the worth of our wealth. And number three is how to treasure our wealth well. Wealth. Money. The more you have it, the better and happier you will be. At least that's what we're told to believe, right? More stuff, more happy. Bigger houses, bigger respect. Did you know that over the last 42 years, the average new U.S. house that has been built has increased in size from an average of about 1,700 square feet to almost 2,700 square feet? So over the past 40 years, people basically want a house from 40 years ago plus a generously sized condo as part of their new home. Even though houses, household sizes have been decreasing, at the same time, the amount of space people want has nearly doubled. We live in a culture that believes that the more you accumulate, the happier you will be. Actually, in a land of easy credit, I should actually say in a culture that believes the more you appear to accumulate, the happier you'll be. But that's a myth. The psalmist in 49, uh, Psalm 49, speaks to the folly of those who trust in their wealth and in their riches. Verses 5 and 6 
or up above. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of my persecutors surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their abundance of their riches? Verse 10, when we look at the wise, they die. The fool and adult perish together and leave their wealth to others. Myth one about wealth is that wealth can buy life, but it can't. No one can bribe death. The wealthy and the poor are all subject to the same, and wealth cannot prevent it. Your wealth cannot buy what happens to you after you die, except maybe how pretty the box is when people come to visit you at your grave. And maybe the view of your grave, which you don't actually get to enjoy. And sure, you can leave it as an inheritance to others, but when you die, there's nothing you can do to enjoy it. The writer of Ecclesiastes, known as the preacher, expands on this vanity of worldly wealth as well. We spend much of our days working and toiling to accumulate wealth for ourselves, only to find that we must, quote, leave it all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. The preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes is traditionally believed to be King Solomon, and he has a unique vantage point to speak these words. You see, King Solomon was one of the most wealthiest people who lived on the face of this earth. Now, these numbers that you'll see behind on the screen are from a few years ago, but someone took the time to normalize the net worth of the wealthiest people throughout history. Cleopatra of ancient Egypt, her wealth in today's dollars was $96 billion. And you have Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, is worth $365 billion now. There's Catherine the Great, the 18th century Russian monarch. She, at her peak, was worth $1.3 trillion in today's dollars. And then you have King Solomon there in the bottom. Can you guess how much he was worth? $2.2 trillion in today's dollars. You see, for the, every year of his 39 years of reign, he would collect 25 tons of gold, plus all of other royal possessions and livestock. Plus, he was taxing all these nations that he had made treaties with. So he was rolling in it. <laughs> Yet he writes this in 2220. So I turned and gave my heart up to despair concerning all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes one who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave it all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Myth one is that money can buy life. Myth two is that you can take it with you, but you can't. But we live like that. We work like that. When Solomon opens the book of Ecclesiastes, he describes the book. He's dealing with the vanity of all vanities in chapter 1, verse 2. This word translated vanity comes from the Hebrew word habel, which actually means vapor. Solomon is saying that all of our work and all of the desire to accumulate wealth is like vapor of vapors. It disappears in a moment. You can't capture it. It just slips through your fingers. Although Solomon did enjoy some aspects of his work, he talks about that, his joy was severely diminished by the knowledge that he would have to leave it and hand over his life's work to someone else. With all of his success, it pains him to imagine that his successor will squander it all away, and we find out in two generations that all of it has disappeared. It leads him to despair and wonder if anything will amount to be of significance. 
Towards the end of his life, he muses about the pointlessness of work and the pointless meaning of all that wealth accumulated. And some of you might already muse about that without the wealth. Arriving at the conclusion that wealth cannot give life. Wealth cannot be the goal of life. More wealth didn't make him any happier. So the question is, is being wealthy sinful? Is having money wrong? No, that's not what scripture is talking about. Wealth, having wealth is not the issue, but it's the deception of having wealth and what wealth measures that is the issue. In Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to 21, a man approaches Jesus for help to convince his brother to share his inheritance with him. Traditionally, in ancient culture, the oldest son gets double the inheritance of all the other siblings. And so we're imagining this must be one of the younger siblings saying, I want a cut of that. And he comes to Jesus for help. But Jesus responds to this request with a rebuke in verse 15. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus speaks of the deceitfulness of riches in Matthew 13. Money and wealth easily tell us lies. Money creates mirages for us. It creates vapors that we believe to be true but are actually in fact, fiction. Wealth can create vapors of security and happiness that aren't actually found there. So how do we make wealth worth it? Chow Yun-Fat is a Hong Kong movie star that you may recognize from the, when he crossed over Hollywood to this crouching tiger hidden dragon movie. He does another character uh, called Bull Bulletproof Monk, and in that movie, the character says this, this money isn't something you possess forever. When you're gone one day, you have to leave it to others to use it. You can't bring the money in your bank account with you after you die. Pretty true. For Chow Yun-Fat, the character's outlook on money wasn't just a character. He actually lived this out in his, lives this out in his real life. Though he's worth an estimated 714 million U.S. dollars, he intends on giving more than 90% of it away when he dies to give to charities for the poor. He currently lives in Hong Kong on 102 US dollars per month. He takes public transit. He buys clothes from discount clothing stores. And he had a Nokia phone for 17 years and only converted to a smartphone recently when his Nokia phone didn't work anymore. One reason, on the reason when asked uh, for giving away his Fortune, Mr. Chow smiled, saying, the money's not mine. I'm only keeping it safe for the time being. For Chow Yun-Fat, recognized, he recognized the worth of his wealth. He recognized that the opportunities that he's enjoyed in his lifetime are simply gifts to steward. He has more than enough to live on and yet chooses to live simply so that more of his material wealth can be directed towards helping those who need it most. He's found things beyond material wealth that are worth living for. In, Luke's, in the Luke passage where Jesus is interacting with this man about his inheritance, he too is reminding us of the fact that life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. Don't measure your happiness and contentment by the uh, um, amount of possessions or the latest shiny offer that comes through on the internet or pops up on your social media feed. Jesus doesn't prohibit wealth, but what he does warn against is the dangerous eternal implications that wealth might lead us 
to believe. Misplacing the worth of our wealth leads us towards self-sufficiency, towards complacency and covetousness. And these all cause us to devalue our true worth of ourselves and the true worth of those around us as image bearers of God. We're just consumers waiting for the next hit. But we're more than that, as Scripture tells us. Jesus tells the parable of this rich fool who anticipates a life of ease, a life of eating, drinking, and being merry, a life of comfort. And Jesus says in this parable, but God said to him, you fool, the very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This fool wants to enjoy life, but he forgets the eternal destiny apart from God that is waiting for him. The worth of the wealth for this fool was himself and his happiness. Up to this point, you might be thinking, well, we've been talking about all these really rich people. I'm just trying to survive here. I don't, I'm not worried about getting super wealthy. You may not think, you may not think that scripture, what, teaches, what scripture teaches applies to you in this situation. But hear this, if you live in America, you are amongst the most wealthy in the world. Now, granted, you may not be wealthy as your neighbor or your co-worker, but Americans are wealthy in comparison to the rest of the world. The typical person who lives in the bottom 5% of the income distribution in America is still richer than 68% of the rest of the world. There's this chart here. It's a chart of uh, percentage of, it's really small to read, but it's a percentage of uh, people who own these items if they come from households of poverty. So on the top there is that 99% have, uh, have a fridge, 89, 98% have a TV and a stove and an oven and a microwave. More than three-quarters of people who live in poverty have air conditioners, which all mean you have a stable source of energy and of sanitation and of water. That's more than most of the world. You have freedom of movement in America and a safe and safe passage. You have a social welfare system. It's messed up, but you have one. You have a choice of food that's shipped across from across the country and even across the globe that you can go to your grocery store and buy. They, this system isn't perfect, but they lend towards our standard of living that exceeds most of the world. If you have, live on more than $4 a day, you're richer than most of the world. That's a drink at Starbucks. Our wealth and resources can be used for selfish gain and employment or for recognizing the worth of humanity. In short, what many of the commands of Scripture are saying is this. Humans are more important than money. Humans are more important than money. Do you hear that? Humans are more important than money. Your worth as a human being and your, na- and your, worth, your neighbor's worth as a human being far exceeds any amount of money that you could ever gain for yourself. And that's why the hallmark of an advanced society is not how, much mater- how materially wealthy people are in that society, but how those who have ensure that the vulnerable and the poor are cared for. Julie and I were uh, viewing the Franklin Roosevelt Memorial for the first time this week, and this quote caught my eye. 
The test of progress, of our progress, is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. Just think about that for a moment and what's going on in our nation. Perhaps Roosevelt's quote is an appropriate reminder of the great worth of wealth that doesn't have selfish interests, but the needs of those who are most vulnerable. And that truly is what makes our nation great. As we mentioned earlier, Jesus continues in Luke 12 saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How you use your wealth, how you spend your money is a reflection of what is in your heart, of what you value. It's what you give worth to. Indeed, it's what you worship. That's the literal definition of worship, to give worth to something. And that's what we hope to encourage here in our worship services, that everything we do, our prayer, our hearing of God's word, our giving of our, of our tithes and offerings, our singing of songs, the direct worship, to saying, God, you are the one who is worth all of the attention in this world. So, here's one action point that you can do this week. It doesn't seem particularly spiritual while you're doing it, but I invite you to consider it is to review your budget. Or if you've gone through life and you've made it this far without having made a budget, that's great, but maybe this is a good time to consider it. <laughs> I invite you to talk to someone you trust, who's, good with, who's also good with their money, and, and talk to them about how you spend your money. Or talk to an elder or myself if you need a referral to someone. The point isn't to, to show someone else what you spend. It's for you to consider does what you spend your time and money on reflect what you say is important to you? You can groan, that's okay, but doing your budget. What's your money worth to you? As your income grows, are you increasing your expenses to accumulate more for your enjoyment or to build bigger houses, to eat nicer food and to buy nicer things? Or are you directing your funds towards things that you say you care about? I know there's people in our congregation here who have chosen to live at the same level of expenses. So as their income grows, they can give more to what is important to caring for those around them. It's easy to click a link on your social media about the injustices of racism or the injustices of poverty and unequal access to education. But it's quite another thing to direct your funds and to direct your time towards making a difference in the lives of others. Remember, your wealth isn't just what's in your bank account. Perhaps you're on a fixed income, so there isn't a ton of room for discretionary spending. That's okay. Your wealth is also in your skill and in your knowledge and in your experience that you have available. Your wealth is in the platform you have to influence others, maybe as a parent or as a neighbor or as a manager in your workplace. It's the relationships that you have in your life. Those are all treasures of resources that God has gifted to you that he's inviting you to spend your life wisely with, especially towards those who have the least. How do you prioritize those in your life? Or is your spare time mostly for entertainment and travel and relaxation? I invite you to consider that where you spend your time reflects what's most important to you. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be.
as well. Paul writes this commandment to his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. How you spend your life gets you to experience true life. You are richer than you think, both as someone who's living in America, but especially as someone who trusts in Jesus. We have the creator of the universe who has provided everything for our needs and for our enjoyment. We are richer even more because of what the living God has done for us. Back to the first section, I think that first myth might be a little bit misrepresented when the psalmist says in Psalm 49, verse 7 to 9, he says, No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. When the psalmist says this, it was right at that time, but it's a little inaccurate on this side of the cross. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom so that you can secure and live on forever. No one can do that except one. And this one person who redeems the life of another is Jesus. And those who respond to Christ in repentance and faith find themselves gifted with an eternal wholeness whose wealth far exceeds anything that we could ever accumulate here on earth that we can't take with us when we die. You might not have 100 bucks in the bank. You might not have $14 million in the bank. But you've got something far more valuable. The gift of God's love and perfection and wisdom and joy when you respond to God, to the God who gives up his own life for the world to experience all of this. And this good news changes everything. We can live open-handed before God. We can live open-handed before the world. We can live secure. As you respond to God's beautiful treasure in Jesus, you can see through this myth of material wealth of the world. You can embrace the true worth of wealth and live to treasure wealth well. The wealth of a flourishing life in Christ and the material and relational wealth of what God has entrusted to you to be directed to help those who need it the most. And we can all do this with God's help for the glorious worship of the living God. Amen.